0: Hello, I'm Brandon Lisi, your host for the Built-On Strategy Podcast, where we explore different strategies with leaders from all around the world. Today, my guest is Mr. Curtis Burkhalter, and he is the Data Insight Product Manager at Mercedes-Benz. And I asked him to come on the show and talk about uh, Mercedes-Benz's inexorable march towards electrification in their vehicles and kind of how that plays out, uh, both from a a marketing perspective, as well as sort of a consumer market trend perspective. So thank you for coming on the show, Curtis.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me, Brandon. I'm excited to be here. So as uh, I
0: always like to do, give me a little bit of your background. You know, how'd you end up as a Data Insight product manager? And uh, how'd you end up at Mercedes-Benz? Yeah, I mean, so that's it's
1: an interesting story, I think, you know, because it's probably a very different than what most people think. Uh, you know, I didn't go to school for you know, business management or statistics or anything like that. Um, you know, I actually, I went to school and got my PhD in ecology and evolutionary biology. Um, during that uh, PhD, I was going to be like that next, you know, Steve Irwin guy. I was going to be on the field and doing all the data stuff and things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, working in some pretty interesting sites in New Jersey, but it was all uh, funded by state money. Um, that state money kind of ran out. Um, so after a year, (laughs) so my, my advisor was like, Oh, okay, well you just, you had a year and that didn't pan out. You got to figure out something quickly unless you want to be here forever. So, um, one thing I got really interested in was some analytical modeling stuff that one of my lab mates was doing. So, um, I was doing the analytical modeling, um, with him, just kind of like learning it a little bit. Um, and then got really interested in it. So I started taking a lot more courses in statistics and mathematical modeling and simulation modeling and things like that. Uh, when I spent the rest of my PhD kind of doing uh those kind of things. Um after that I went over to um uh, National Audubon Society and I worked as a quantitative research scientist for a couple of years, doing a lot of things related to endangered species management and things like that. Um and then uh again, you know, a lot of people, conservation is important, but uh, getting money for conservation is very difficult. So um my contract ended with the Audubon Society. Um and I was looking for jobs and I ended up actually moving into the private sector. So I went into the consumer packaged goods area, um, working as a, like a analytics manager there. So did a lot of kind of AB testing and things like that of various retail strategies. Um, and you know, I, I, it was a good, I think a good first job when I got out of school, um, and out of like kind of the conservation world. Um, but I knew I didn't want to work in CPG forever. Um, so what I ended up doing is, you know, kind of just like beginning to look around. Um, and I got all these data skills and things like that. So that was, you know, and still is kind of hot right now. You know, people want data scientists and things like that. Um, so I have a friend who actually works at Mercedes and she said, Hey, they're, they're hiring a data scientist down in Jacksonville. And I was like, cause the the headquarters is actually in Atlanta. Um, but I was like, Oh, I didn't even know Mercedes was here in Jacksonville other than at the, you know, the dealerships. So they have a big uh, regional sales office and parts distribution center and an engineering center down here in Jacksonville. Um, So I went and uh, applied for that job and I actually got the job and it's based in an IT department. So the IT department that supports um, engineering services down here in Jacksonville. So um, did that for gosh, probably 18 months. Um, Then we had a bit of a reorganization within the company Um, and there was this new that had just formed, which is like our analytics and platform team. Um, so I joined up with them as a data scientist still. Um, and then in January of this year, um, I took over the role of data insights product manager. So um, pretty, pretty long and secure route, I would say. <laughs> Getting to the data insights product manager at Mercedes-Benz, it was never like really kind of like my, my goal or plan to, to work at a, at a car company, but that's that's where I ended up. So, but it's a great company and I really enjoy it. You know, we do lots of really interesting, cool things with data. So I like it a lot.
0: So one of the things we talked about at the beginning, kind of as we were preparing for this is, you know, the, as I said earlier, you know, the Mercedes Benz March, you know, most of the car manufacturers think have realized that the, the days of the con- internal combustion engine are, 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 you know, limited and there's a, you know, not just a consumer side in terms of, hey, this is the benefit, right? There's a supply chain energy distribution aspect of this that I think is a huge barrier to rapid adoption, but uh, it seems like it's changing. You know, you're starting to see the signs of that. Uh, charging stations popping up more and more ubiquitously. Um, yeah. What has been the big <clears throat> sort of, what's been the big barrier, you think, to electrification
1: yeah. Vehicles
0: I, you know, and some of the challenges that Mercedes is tackling to, to overcome that.
1: I think, you know, primarily, you know um, for a lot of the OEMs, these, these companies that are producing cars, I think one of the biggest points of entry is, is you have so much infrastructure in place to build combustion engine vehicles. You know, there's all this, you know, your factories are set up to do that. That's what your personnel are hired to do. You know, that's what they've done for a long time. Um, you know, so I think that's like probably one of the biggest entry points, you know, because, um, to then overhaul that obviously it takes a ton of money, you know, you're not just going to like do that overnight. Um, so you kind of have to figure out, you know, how can you realign your strategy within the company, um, to say, Hey, we're going to switch over to this, you know, and do electric vehicles now, um, or at least begin producing electric vehicles. How are we going to produce those? You know, where are we going to get the supplies from? Um, you know, who are we going to retrain or who are we going to hire to actually make these vehicles? Um, you know, and then the support of those vehicles, you know, you have the, the dealership network and things like that, you know, they obviously, you know, having never serviced electric vehicles as well, you have to have ramp up as well on that side where, you know, the, the dealerships have to hire personnel that or retrain personnel that it currently exists that understands how to service these electric vehicles and things like that. So, you know, I don't think it's particularly like one thing like main thing, but you know, it's, it's a lot of little things, you know, um, that really kind of go into that and determine the, the strategy for how you're going to transition into electric vehicles. And, and like you said, a lot of these OEMs are now doing that, you know, there's, there's a lot of push across, you know, you know Volvo, G, uh, GM, Ford, they're all making that big push now, you know, and then with the startup market, you know, with Tesla and places like Canoe and things like that as well, um, you know, you, you have a lot of competition kind of from all sides. So you got to kind of try to balance your strategy with that as well, Is you know, doing the transition quickly and keeping up with your competitors but you know not trying to change things so fast that you get out in front of yourself a little bit
0: a lot of the stuff that we've done in the past it's an agency it was sort of tied to brand revitalization and you know that process of connecting an old brand with a new generation part of that strategy is not alienating your existing customers right because it's there's a real fine balance of attracting the new while maintaining the old, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm a former Mercedes-Benz owner. Um, you know, I had I had a GL 550 for a while, which was a, a great car to, to ride. Uh, I've been trying to downsize everything. Part of it was I don't want to have a car that can haul stuff in. Right. So that gets me out of a certain Boy Scout responsibilities. So there was a strategy in going to a two seat, you know, a small convertible, a four seat convertible. But when, when, well, I guess maybe the best way to start this is what is the, is there a date in the future? Like, you know, Mercedes has said by this date, you know, we're going to just be producing, you know, electric vehicles.
1: Yeah, so um, it's not a completely electric vehicles or like all like EV, but it would be a, a combination still of EV and plug-in hybrid a little bit. But the plan right now is, uh, if you go out and look on the internet, you just look up ambition twenty thirty nine in uh, Mercedes-Benz. That's kind of the big company strategy. Um, ambition twenty thirty nine is we want to get to a completely carbon neutral fleet by 2039. And that's a mix of EV, you know, and plug-in hybrid um, and then efficiencies there with those. Um, so, so that's kind of our our date. Um, there has been, you know, some talk within the company and things like that of, can we accelerate that in some way, you know, maybe do it a little bit faster. Um, you know, I know that by 2030, I think they want to have 50% of all fleet vehicles be plug-in hybrid um, or elect- or all electric vehicles. So. You know there's there's kind of benchmarks along the way and things like that um but ultimately 2039 is our, is our goal post of getting to a completely carbon neutral fleet
0: so it's completely unrelated we'll get into the consumer insight stuff and the you know data insight stuff yeah. um, i'm curious is that do you think that will translate into the racing side because i know mercedes has a big racing thing or do you think that there'll always be sort of a no, we're going to, we're going to stick with that. Or is that, do you think that'll be something that kind of all these high end brand performance brands that do the racing will eventually go, you know what, we're going to have to go electric vehicles or some kind of combination on that front too, <laughs> or
1: it was yeah. like, it will slow everything down. It won't really work because of the yeah, recharging. Popping out
0: battery packs and stuff.
1: Yeah. Maybe they'll switch over. Cause I know that there's also, um, you know, for buses and things like that, like big trucks, there's lots of interest in hydrogen fuel cells. So maybe maybe the race cars will go hydrogen fuel. Yeah. There's I haven't heard anything about uh yeah, the the F one team going all electric. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would I would have,
0: like I bet there's a that's gonna be the bastion of last resistance. Yeah, yeah.
1: So like, no that's where, that's where so, all the combustion engine technology goes, all to, to F one.
0: <laughs> it's interesting, you know, it used to be, I don't know if it still is, you know, that was a, a big driver, you know, I, I, obviously with Ford versus Ferrari that came out, I think last year, you know, it was, there was a time where the the racing really influenced sort of customer perceptions and whatnot. And I, and I know in other categories like golf clubs, right. What the pros use is a mm-hmm. huge influencer on the average golfer, right. Yeah. How much does that still play a role uh, or are they really kind of bifurcated now where, most consumers aren't really paying attention to the racing or it's just a small subset that are looking at the high performance vehicles.
1: You know, I think it's always going to be a bit of a smaller subset that are looking at those high performance vehicles, you know, so our AMG line, um, you know, it's not going anywhere. There's people still want those high performance vehicles, you know? Um, so, you know, there is, there is the push to ultimately go electric with that as well, you know? So, you know, I think that, um, They'll they'll figure out some way to make it work with those cars, you know. In in terms of making those still very high performance, um, you know, and keeping the horsepower up and things like that. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's always it's always been a much smaller subset, I think, uh, of the brand for like most consumers. You know, Um, the AMG side, you know, does um, a lot of business, but it's it's not our primary, you know, core business. You know, the the biggest seller in the U.S. is actually the the SUVs. So you know, I think getting getting everybody that you know, once to get into an SUV and then transitioning that into, um, you know, all electric, I think is going to be a big push, you know, and when we had a plan last, last year or the year before, I think it was 2019, um, to, to roll out the, the EQC, which is what's going to be our first kind of flagship electric vehicle, um, here in the U S. Um, and that's kind of like our, our electric analog of like the GLC. Um, so, um, You know, it ended up not happening. They are selling those in the U.S. right now uh, or in in Germany right now. Um, But, yeah, it ended up not happening here in the U.S. Um, So I think that that's probably going to be our biggest focus um, moving forward once we kind of roll out the sedans and things like that um, is going to be moving into some of those larger SUVs and how can we maintain comparable performance. And, you know, obviously, the the technology aspect is going to be there, you know, because, Um, that's really what people are looking for a lot now, you know, is, is, you know, is that kind of like experience, you know, within driving, you know, it's not so much about, you know, performance with a lot of these people that are buying cars now, um, for like, you know, hauling their family and things like that. Like you said, when we were gearing up, you know, driving the the G550, you know, that's not really a family hauler, but like, you know, our, our GLEs and our GLSs, lots of families want those because those are bigger, bigger SUVs and things like that. Um, and getting people into those vehicles an electric standpoint is going to be, I think a big push moving forward, just because that's, that's what the market wants, you know, they want SUVs. So how are, how are we going to do that moving forward? I think it's going to be big, um, you know, our, our, our pilot, not really pilot, but kind of our, our flagship vehicle that we're rolling out in the U S though, is is the EQS. So the electric version of our S class sedan. Um, so we're doing that one first here in the U S. Um, but you know, if you haven't checked that out, I definitely would, it's, it's, an amazing
0: piece of technology so when you're working as the you know data insights product manager let's kind of shift back a little bit to, to your role mm-hmm. how do you because there's a it seems to me that there's a lot of different elements and issues and customer perceptions not just about ownership maintenance support uh, you know with electrical obviously there's you know issues around uh, recharging availability and, and co- total cost of ownership, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you, where do you sort of prioritize or how have you guys sort of prioritized what data and what insights you're focusing on? Because you know, as somebody who's, I'm a big believer in clients have always heard me say, is like, it all starts with an insight, right? What's the customer insight and then the ideas and everything else flow from that. You really have to build your marketing around a good customer insight. So yeah. this is sort of near and dear to my heart. But, I'm, you know, given that there's a, a lot of different things to explore, right, where do you kind of where have you prioritized and kind of where is your current focus?
1: Yeah, you know, right now, um, just because we haven't been selling a lot of electric vehicles, we can't really use the data for that, obviously. Um, but what we can do is use our existing customer data. So we look at like previous purchase patterns and things like that, you know, in terms of what vehicles our customers have purchased in the past you know, and then we tie in a lot of kind of external data sources. So we have like our existing, you know, MBSA um, data, um, but then we can also bring in stuff from like Experian and things like that. And we t- kind of tie those pieces together um, to get information on demographics and things like that as well. Um, and we, you know, we can use that to kind of segment and like cut the data a little bit, you know, and, and say, all right, you know, people that have, um primarily purchase you know uh, class sedan or our or GLS you know SUV um and have this purchase history um kind of fall within these income brackets and things like that and their interests and stuff um we can kind of build out customer profiles and we can say you know these are probably going to be our most likely customers for our, our electric vehicles that we're rolling out right now um, so how do we get in contact with them you know do we you know obviously direct mailers is not something people want you know um, so it's typically in the form of like email campaigns and things like that, where we say, Hey, you know, you know, your lease contract or your finance contract is coming up. Uh, we've noticed that you have this purchase history or something, you know, we'd like to say, we hey, thought about an electric vehicle, you know, yeah. and kind of so a lot of it's really around your
0: customer journey stuff, right? So yeah, extending yeah. lifetime customer value, getting the most out of it. And you bought like me, I, I had a GL 550 and then I ended up, actually sold it and went into a uh, subscription service for a while, which was an interesting experience for me um, and got exposed to a lot of different brands. Um, I noticed in, 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 I live in Druid Hill. Well, I live in uh, in, in, the center of Atlanta, right? So uh, fairly affluent zip codes uh, in, in, in general compared to certain other parts. And I noticed that a lot of people uh, in my age group, right. The, 45 to 65 year old males, right? They have Teslas, mm-hmm. right? There's definitely been a lot of adoption of that technology that I've seen over the last five to seven years as people have upgraded their cars. Mm-hmm. So, so I see a certain segment of the population that are my peers and some of that is just because they're my peers and I'm around them and I see it. Yeah. Um, where where is the biggest adoption in terms of age demographics and whatnot that you're seeing in the, in the electric vehicles or the hybrid spaces
1: and whatnot yeah it typically is kind of like it mirror is kind of what you've said you know um obviously there's you know certain age groups and demographics maybe have a little bit less expendable income and things like that so you know you see a lot of it's you know 45 to 55 year olds that are probably gonna be a primary customer target base that would have you know interest in buying one of these electric vehicles Um, you know, because it's one of those things, like you said, um, as well, you know, with maybe having a little less room or need for kids and things like that in the car, you know, you can go out and buy a a nice S-class sedan. It's a big car, but it's not like you're going to put, you know, three kids and two dogs and a bunch of sports equipment and things like that in there, you know. Um, So it is primarily, I think, where it's, we're going to see a lot of early adoption is going to be in uh, the demographic, maybe 45 to 60, um, you know, and, you know, a bit more higher income brackets you know over 100k you know household income and things like that so i think that there's um obviously room to grow but it's going to be i think kind of come from other um other vehicles so you know we have like the the smaller SUVs that we'll be rolling out as well that have already come out in places like china like the eqa um, which is our you know uh smallest suv or kind of like a suv crossover for the uh, gla analog. So I think that once we get some of those maybe less expensive um, things that maybe offer a bit more kind of uh, family friendly features, you know, in terms of space and things like that, I think that we'll see a lot more adoption of maybe younger demographics and stuff. But right now I I do see it more primarily falling in that 45 to 60 year old higher income bracket space.
0: Do You see a lot of, correlation between other purchase behaviors like if you own a mac or if you own this or you own that you know from a technology because it seems like there's also you know i'm not necessarily a i don't consider myself to be an early adopter like my business partner is definitely like he's buying all the new stuff right i'm I, you know for a while i had the joke of being mr analog right like golf clubs guitars you know just cooking equipment you know i mean it's just I'm very analog in terms of the way I buy stuff and whatnot, because I, I, I like the experience of holding and touching and feeling things. But do you see a big correlation? Then also sort of how their purchase behaviors and whatnot tie back into part of at least my perception of it being a luxury brand, right? There, it's, yeah. it's There's a luxury slash luxury performance brand. I'm not sure exactly what the brand positioning for, for, for Mercedes is these days, but, that has been my perception as sort of a luxury performance brand. And kind of how how's all that tie together in terms of forming your insights?
1: Yeah, I mean, we do look at some of the activities that people are interested, they're engaged in. You know, we get a lot of that from Experian and things like that. Um, and you kind of like hit the nail on the head there really, is, and I, I kind of smiled because one of the, the big things that we saw actually is, is people, and it's probably because they're correlated in a lot of ways themselves, um, but golf, people who are really interested in golf, uh, probably are going to be one of our early adopters of of these electric vehicles, given the the customer um, segmentation and like the the brands themselves. You know, obviously it's it's you know, Golf is correlated with that age group and that income level and things like that. Oftentimes, um, so then you see those kind of cross correlations as well between you know the EQ affinity, if you want to call it that. You know, um, so I think that you know we we do see those kind of insights, you know, people that often show a higher interest in sports in general also are often kind of um, people that are, have a lot of interest in potentially buying a, an electric vehicle. So maybe it says something about, you know, the, the sportier aspect of the vehicle or something, you know, but yeah, I, I those are the two big correlates. I remember like coming out of the analysis that was done by one of our data scientists is people that really like golf and people that really like sports in general, probably are going to buy one of these cars. <laughs> Built On Strategy is sponsored by tcicrm.com. If you're frustrated with the performance of your marketing CRM, call TCI CRM's database expert to quickly diagnose the problem, optimize your systems, and boost the productivity of your entire marketing and sales team. Move your business forward at tcicrm.com.
0: It's kind of unrelated in a way, but uh, my mom has uh, arthritis. And mm-hmm. uh, I had been getting, trying to get her to try some CBD products, right. To mm-hmm. address her arthritis. Yeah. She's like, No, no. I like would not touch it, <laughs> would not deal with it until they started selling it at the golf pro shop. Right. And then it was oh, like, Oh, funny. it's now legitimate. So I, I <laughs> yeah. kind yeah. of imagine, so, you know, I, I haven't seen any, doesn't mean they don't exist. Um, but, you know, I'm kind of curious to see, how quickly or if you'll start seeing the charging stations at some of the golf courses, you know, that kind of yeah. tie back into that. Uh, I mean, they might already
1: be happening and I just not, not aware of it. Yeah. There's so many of those in the country. I think it's something along the lines of like 60,000 different public charging stations throughout the country. So yeah, I bet you they're probably popping up all over golf courses. Or, you know.
0: So going back to the uh, insight for a moment, I mean, what are some of the barriers to adoption, um, that you really kind of have to look at and consider when you're thinking about the inside and the ideas and your campaigns?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of times it's, it's really, you know, coming at it from the perspective of, you know, and that's why I was really interested in transitioning from kind of like this individual contributor role of data scientist, um, to data insights, product manager. And I, and I said this from my interview, you know, a lot of times data science and these like analytics campaigns and things like that, you know, um, it's not so much about like, can we do it? I mean, that, the technology is there. Algorithms are out there. We we have the technology to do these things, but it's like a data science to me is like a very difficult people problem. It's like a behavioral thing, you know, is this like, um, how do you get exactly. people to trust it? How do you get people to trust the results? You know, how do you get people to change their behaviors when they are confronted with these data? And because, you know, I think a lot of times, and this is not like specific to Mercedes-Benz, I think it's just specific to a lot of industries. You know, you have a lot of people that have been doing it for a long time and you have, you know, data science tends to skew a little younger now, you know, so you have these younger people coming in and being like, oh, I've I've got this figured out, man. I mean, I know you've been here 25 years, but I've got it figured out. I've got this data and I've got these models and we can do all that. I mean, and that's what we're really trying to, like I try to address in my job, is is how do we get people on board and how do we increase adoption, you know? And I think a lot of it is, is like coming at it from an empathetic mindset of, you know, how would I feel someone was to come in and tell me you know oh i've got all this insight into your business that you've been doing for a long time you know i probably would feel pretty defensive i probably would feel pretty hesitant you know so i I try to give them the the understanding that like yeah we can do these fancy technical things um but i don't want to do it if i at the expense of alienating them you know so we begin by really addressing issues that they have lots of pain points with. That's one of the things I try to figure out early on is like, what are your pain points? Because I think that if you can address someone's pain points um, within their business process, then that's going to solve a lot of your problems right there, you know, and that's kind of like the low hanging fruit for me. You know, it's not always an easy problem to solve with data. um, But if you can prove to someone, hey, I can solve this pain point for you, um, they're going to feel pretty good about that. And then they're probably going to trust you to do something else for them, you know, and then they may listen to you even if it goes counter to what they think, you know, occurs in the business and stuff like that. So I think, you know, yeah, you know,
0: it's there, you know, you you had used trying to get, you I think you used the phrase, getting people to change their behaviors. Mm -hmm. Uh, My, now I sit at it kind of from a, you know, you're sort of inside the organization. Mm -hmm. I always come in from the outside of the organization you know, as a consultant or a marketing agency or whatever it might be. And to me, it's about getting people to change their preconceived ideas, right? Sometimes, like you to your point, ideas and experience built on experiences from a long time, right? And I think it's not just, hey, the world is changing, right? So your perceptions and your experiences are changing uh, or may not be changing as fast as the world, and I think the other part of it that is often a barrier is, and you touched on this at the beginning, is there's this infrastructure, right? Mm-hmm. This methodology or this process where we've always done it this way. Yeah. And the the group has done it this way, so it must be good, right? And so yeah. here comes Curtis with his newfangled ideas and his mm-hmm. interweb right? <laughs> technology tools, and trying to tell me how to do my job in a way that, you know, potentially could upset the apple cart. Right. And I think that's, you see, I see a lot of that uh, Mm -hmm. and it's more fear-based decision-making as opposed to aspirational. And I think the reason I bring that up is I think you're, you know, we have that shared experience of, okay, well, instead of let me tell you what your problem is and here's what your solution, I think what you're, what you're advocating, which is very smart is, tell me what your problem is and let me see if I can find a solution to your problem mm-hmm. and then gain credibility so I can help you maybe identify some problems that you haven't seen yet. Right. Yeah. And I think that's an, that's an interesting and subtle uh, political dynamic, right. It's just interpersonal relationships that go into to this. It's not just about the data all the time. It's about, sometimes it's the, the organizational politics, right? Yeah. Or, or whatever it might yeah.
1: be. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's one of those things where like I try to align on like a couple different levels really, you know, when it comes to these data insights, you know, is, you know, the desirability of this potential solution that we can come up with, you know, from the internal customers' perspective. Cause right now, like we don't interact with like retail customers really. So it's says internal customers, you know, is is like finding what's desirable for them and then finding what's feasible. Not necessarily from a tech perspective, because like I said, we can do, we have all the tech we need. Maybe we don't have the data to answer those questions or something like that, you know? So we have to figure those things out and kind of what's the, you know, viability of it from a business perspective, you know, oftentimes, you know, there's these, these really cool ideas and things like that, you know, but really if it doesn't boil down to some sort of either, you know, revenue generation, cost efficiencies, or even just time efficiencies for our internal customers, you know, um, you're really not going to get buy in there as well, you know, because you have to you know, I may be approached by, let's say, a department manager. Well, above him is a general manager and above him is a vice president, you know? So, like, we're going at it from the perspective of, all right, well, this department manager is really liking this thing, but I need to also convince his general manager, you know? So, we try to get them involved early as we can, you know, with these kind of initiatives as well, you know? as You don't want to spring it upon somebody like four months after you've been working on something and you say, all right, well, I talked to Joe, the department manager, and he's really on board. This is cool, right? And he's like, what are you even talking about? I have no so, idea what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. You know, well, <laughs> so I imagine there's also a little bit of, or both
0: sides, right? Both you and your sort of that first client, right? The first manager, mm-hmm. right? Being able to get the perspective of a broader audience or a broader data set and say, well, this is your problem. Is it a bigger problem, right? Uh, yeah. just getting a, or a, you know, I see this a lot where we're calling the problem this. They're calling mm-hmm. the problem that, but they're yeah. both tied, but neither, both of them are really the symptoms. The real problem is this other thing that by getting that broader data perspective and the organizational or process perspective, you start uncovering not just the symptoms, but what the real causal issues are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, and well, I and design I, your it, experiment, right? Cause that's what you've got to do essentially is draw on that, that biology uh, experimental, experimental design, right. It's like, well, how do I create something that eliminates bias and gets me really good data uh, around a specific issue, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's the thing too, is that sometimes, you know, picking something that maybe the data isn't there for, you know, you, you find, all right, well, if we do, if we do this, then we can begin to generate data and that kind of snowballs in itself, you know, and that, and that data can then answer these other questions and then these things snowball and you can answer these other set of questions and stuff like that, you know. So so it's it's really kind of finding those like small little pieces like here and there where you can really like identify those issues. And and like you said, I think it's you know getting as many perspectives as you can. So like, you know, a, a real quick example is we kicked off this project recently. Um, and in our our first meeting, you know, we had. 17 people there spread across like five different departments, you know, and like you said, they, they all had a very different view of what they thought the problem was, you know? Um, so it involved me kind of talking to all of them, you know, in, in a group, you know, putting together kind of a, a wireframe diagram of how I think all these pieces fit together and then sitting down with them individually. So we, we spend a ton of time. I, uh, you know, now from a data insights perspective, I find putting in the work in and the front end, is going to save you a lot of effort on the back end. You're not going to be doing it two or three times. So, you know, we conv- conducted all these individual interviews and then in that process, then I was actually able to connect with a retail customer. Um, and, you know, what we identified actually is, is that what I thought was the problem going into it, even with all the perspective from the beginning, changing it from through the spectrum of the actual customer changed everything for me. And I was like, Oh no, like we can't do that first. We've got to do this first, you know? So That's what we're doing now is we have a very specific solution like that we're building in place and it's, it wouldn't have come though without talking to like a ton of people, you know, because ultimately, like people like myself that are very technical, we don't have all that business knowledge, you know, so we can't really go in and just say, we can do all this, you know, because we can't, (laughs) it's impossible. (laughs)
0: You know, one last thing I want to kind of touch on, and, and and this might be a little bit too far down the road. I mean, we we've been you know through the, through our conversation today, we primarily focused on you know electrification from a power perspective, mm-hmm. but you know there's a much larger aspect of electrification or digitalization, maybe uh, around how cars are getting smarter. Um, you know, my 2013, I think I had a 2013 uh, GL550, mm-hmm. and I was, you know, I loved that it had the, the radar capability, right? You, you put yeah. the, you know, you put it on cruise control, and as she came up on a car, your car would slow down and maintain that distance control, which I thought was an amazing safety feature, right? Um, I didn't buy the car because of it, you know, uh, but I thought it was a really cool innovation, yeah. Right? And so there was a lot of little pieces of technology. And that's what, eight years ago, right? Yeah. Where kind of paint, help me paint the picture or you paint the picture for me of kind of where you see not just the cars going from the point of view of getting from point A to point B, but how they're going to start interacting more and more with the world around them. Because I'm seeing that in more of the late model cars uh, that, you know, some of my friends have bought.
1: Yeah. I mean, that gets really to that idea of like connected cars and like telematics, you know, um, and there's some like really interesting things that can like occur there that like, you know, I was just speaking the other day to the manager um, that handles all the telematics data, you know, um, and really they have these like really cool things now where, you know, the, the cars are connected, um, you know, through the control units and things like that. And they can send information through an app that's connected to your vehicle And that app can then relay information to the dealership that you may not even know about. So, you know, like the car, let's say, you know, running low on coolant level or something like that, you know, maybe it's not a big thing, but you know, it it could be. So what it does is the, you know, that information is then relayed to the dealership. The dealership calls you up and says, Hey, you know, we noticed these things occurring in the car. You might want to come in and get your coolant level checked, you know? Um, So I think it's going to be a lot of kind of, I don't want to say like, predictive maintenance and things like that, because that implies something completely different, but maybe preventative maintenance, you know, that would be automatic in a lot of ways. It's um, diagnostics, think, right? Yeah. Diagnostics are going to be truly like remote, you know, and it's going to feed back to the dealers who can then update you. But then that also like feeds into like marketing and stuff like that, you know? So like, if, let's say you have a bunch of customers that are, have a similar issue or something like that, you know, where it's maybe it's, um, you know, you, you've had these tires for 30,000 miles or something like that, you know, obviously 30,000 miles is too low. Had them for 75,000 miles. And let's say, you know, then a a notice is sent from the dealer to you saying, Hey, you know, we noticed that last time you came in, you had these, these tires that have been put on and they're really old now, but we have a discount on these things. Well, how do you target which customers you're actually going to go and do that for, you know? And that's where the customer purchase history and customer lifetime value comes into it again. You know, as you can use these data insights and you can say, all right, well, these customers are our most loyal customers. So if the dealers are going to be providing kind of like discounts or, you know, goodwill measures and things like that to our customers, we want to provide them to those, the correct customers. And it's not always going to be maybe your most loyal. Maybe it's those that have had maybe one or two vehicles, you know, but you want to like keep them loyal to the brand. You know, so maybe you provide marketing or goodwill, uh, for them as well. And you say, all right, well, if we do this, then they're most likely to come back after the car is done or the lease is done, you know, they're going to buy another car from us, you know, so you have all these things that are seem like hyper-technical from a perspective of, you know, relaying information over the air to our dealerships and stuff like that, you know, directly from the car or from an app or something like that, you know, but then that then influences our marketing strategy, you know, so There's lots of all these really cool interconnected pieces, and a lot of that is tied together with data.
0: So, so, uh, yeah, having done a a fair amount of work through the years around, you know, whether it's software applications or specific pieces of equipment, because a lot of our stuff is OEM related. One of the big things is usability rates, right? Are you using it? Because if you're not using it, then you don't see value. And so some of the newer stuff, like the email integrations and the Siri-like voice integrations and things along those lines, seems to me like it opens up the possibility of, you know, while you're not going to monitor the actual communications, it's like, I know that you're using that function, right, more frequently, Um, or even creating like, you know, I can send information to my you know, dealer about the coolant level, but I can also send you coupons directly to the car and tie things to that particular vehicle that they can extract by connecting it to the computer, right? So, I don't have to send information to your mobile phone or your email or some of the other ones. The car itself becomes a delivery platform for Marcom Communications, yeah, and, and it seems like, is that something that you guys are able to start modeling and look at in terms of, I mean, some of this is fairly new, but I mean, I would imagine it's been ubiquitous enough for a couple of years that you're getting a good sense of how people are using the different technology tools that exist within these vehicles.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, my team doesn't handle this directly, but I talk to like the, the, the team that does, um, you know, a lot of that information we actually use to improve our pricing models and stuff like that, you know? So like, let's say, you know, uh, sunroofs, you know, people buy a sunroof and they never open it, you know, like all information information's logged, like you, know? My wife. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it costs money to put a sunroof in. So, um, you know, if no one's ever using it, maybe we don't include a sunroof, you know, as a, as a, you know, a standard feature or something like that, you know, in the vehicles. And then that makes the vehicle marginally cheaper or something like that, you know, well, then that helps out with the marketing because, you know, you know, 50,000 versus 49,500. That looks a little different. You know, you're like, Oh, I got $49,000. I don't have $50,000, you know? So, you know, it's one of those things where it's like these little marginal differences, you know, that we're like, we're exploring those kind of things. Um, or maybe it doesn't necessarily change the pricing, but maybe it changes the offering. So maybe you change from, you know, a retractable sunroof to a moonroof, you know, where it's just a clear glass over the top the entire time, you know, people like those but it doesn't have to have like a retractableness to it, you know? So you can just, you can change the offerings completely within the vehicle and things like that. And like you said, I think that there will be that push towards personalization, especially with like these new technologies they have embedded within the cars, like the new um, MBUX, like hyper screens that are in the cars and a lot of these vehicles, I mean, the screen is going to go from one side of the car to the other side of the car. It's this huge screen that's on display all the time. And obviously for your drivers, you wouldn't want, you know, something popping up, like go buy a a burger, you know, you're, you're, you're passing Burger King, here's a coupon for Burger King, but maybe uh, something like that on the, on the passenger side or something like that, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, right now I think we're using a lot of information for, um, vehicle build personalization and then ultimately pricing optimization.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating world for sure. I I mean, it's, you know, as somebody who's been driving cars now for, you know, what, 35 40 years. It's it's pretty amazing when I think back to the level of technology in my 1972 Plymouth Duster, right? And and (laughs) what my friend just bought in his Tesla, right? In in terms of, because he bought one of the higher end Teslas and um, and some of the Mercedes or Audis or whatever it might be. It's really, you're starting to see a huge convergence of a lot of different kinds of technologies that they go a long way towards enhancing the customer experience.
1: Yeah. And that's what it's really about. I mean, because like you said in the beginning, you know, it's like Mercedes is a luxury brand, you know, but there's a lot of luxury brands out there. So how do you differentiate yourself? You know, and I think a lot of that is through like the experience of the vehicle, you know, people, people don't like getting in their car and commuting for an hour, but if you can make it an experience in some way or another, you know, I mean, it's not as bad.
0: So the I hot tub that, car, man, you've seen the, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Working yeah, I'm, hot tub. <laughs> hot I'm tub waiting for the Jetson
0: vehicles, feet. man. You know, that's, that's, that's the one that I like, I, I don't know if I'd be an early adopter cause I want to make sure it's safe, but it, you know, when we can start flying around like, dude, yeah. I'm all over, I'm all over that one. You know? Yeah.
1: No, I mean, I can't even wait. I mean, hopefully we'll get to the point where we have smart cities and things like that, where everybody's driving autonomous vehicles and you don't have to look up, you can just sit in your own personal valet that takes you to and from places i mean that'll be yeah.
0: it. and Not you hard. wonder at that point in time is will brand even matter at that point right or be, will they become just functional their subways right nobody cares who made the subway
1: yeah right? i mean i think yeah. that in some ways yeah i think for a lot of people it won't matter anymore because they're like yeah. they just don't have that but i think there's always gonna be those people that like kind of want that uh a luxury feel or luxury experience and you know the kind of that
0: the kind of
1: clout that comes with that a little yeah.
0: bit. And, they're, and they want their own stuff too, right? They yeah. don't have to, you know, they don't have to use the public utility version. for
1: sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've all ridden in the back, so the back of a taxi cab. I don't think anybody wants to ride in a taxi cab all day. So.
0: Uh, <laughs> especially the ones that were in New York back in the 90s. Yeah. Oh, so no. like,
1: yeah.
0: Well, Curtis, okay. thank
1: you for coming on the podcast,
0: man. This is fascinating. Yeah. I love this yeah. kind of stuff. It's an, interesting, it's an interesting world in which you live and you have a cool job because there's never going to not be a time where you don't have no more problems to solve because there's yeah, just man. so much the, the innovate pace of innovation and change in your industry, certainly between now and 2039, right. You've got, yeah. you know, they just gave you what, 20 years of, uh, of work to do, you know, yeah. where it's just going to be integrating new and new and new and new and new. And so you're going to always have to figure out how that impacts your organization and, how you guys are going to be able to extract some insights to come up with good ideas and take action. So
1: yeah, for sure. yeah. Yeah. So this is a ton of fun. So thanks for having me on. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. And
0: if you're interested in about data science or kind of what's going on over at Mercedes Benz, at least on the uh, back end part of it, uh, you can reach out to Curtis Burke Halter through LinkedIn. He and I are connected. I'm always happy to connect folks on my show with uh, people who are interested in learning more. So again, Curtis, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thank you very much. Have a good
0: day. Until next time, I'm Brandon Lacey, reminding you that a successful life, much like a successful business, is built on strategy. And if you need a better strategy to compete for customers or talent, contact me, Brandon Lacey, at builtonstrategy.com or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. And finally, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast platform you prefer. Share it and recommend it to your friends. Take care.